0: Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. So the topic today is one I've touched on over the past seven years that I've been doing this podcast. But I think, given the stakes of this presidential election, it's important to devote an entire episode to it. And the title is kind of a little much of a mouthful here. So let me kind of you know elaborate on what I'm trying to get at here. So the basic premise that I want to kind of explore is the belief among a certain percentage of liberals, percentage of the left, Democrats, that the hatred that is directed at them, at us, by the right wing in America is somehow deserved or in some way legitimate. That liberals must be doing something wrong to elicit such hate and contempt from such a large portion of the citizenry. Now, often this is couched Within the language that those living in the liberal bubbles of the coastal areas are out of touch with rural America and the heartland, right? There is this view that's just so pervasive. It's like if you had a dollar for every time someone peddled this, right? That coastal elites look down on right-wing America and therefore their anger is somehow justified. So I want to unpack the many myths and falsehoods embedded in this thinking and bring some realism and sobriety to this train of thought, because I think it's just incredibly important. Before I do this, it's important to point out that what these members of the left, these liberals and Democrats are expressing, is exactly what right-wing propagandists claim, right? That coastal elites look down on rural, red America, and that they are simply reaping what they sow. Right? If you read right-wing commentary, even not the rabid right-wing stuff, even the stuff sometimes in the New York Times or the Washington Post, there's this kind of underlying current, like, yeah, well, hey, if you're going to hate on all those people, of course they're going to hate you back. And, you know, it's kind of your fault if only you listened to them more and took them seriously, right? So we really need to unpack and, again, step by step, kind of show how this is false, First off, the basic notion that liberals are in some bubble, detached from the right wing, is false. I live in one of the most liberal coastal towns in California. You can't get more liberal, basically, almost anywhere in the United States than where I live. And yet, here, about one out of every three people is a Republican and or Trump supporter. I have many MAGA heads on my block as my neighbors. Like, literally, I can see them out my window. There were Trump signs. There weren't in 2020, I'll admit that, but in 2016, there were Trump signs on my block. In New York City, where I come from, which I would argue is probably the most liberal city in America, maybe San Francisco is, but anyway, a very liberal city, there are huge swaths of Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens and the Bronx, that are heavily MAGA, right? Even in the most liberal areas, there are a non-trivial amount. I mean, you you know, where I live, it's 30%, 33, that's low, right? It's two-thirds liberal. But again, one out of every three is a Trump supporter or Republican. So the notion that you have to live in a rural area or in the middle of the country to know what MAGA is about is just pure fiction. It's everywhere. Let's continue this example using California. If you drive 50 miles from any coastal city inland, you're likely in MAGA country in California, which is an incredibly blue state. Most counties in California are red, even though, of course, the population of California is solidly liberal. The same, of course, is true in red states in the reverse. There are plenty of liberal areas, even in the most red states, whether it's Idaho has Boise, you know, or South Carolina has, you know, Charleston, or North Carolina has, you know, the the, the Raleigh-Durham area, right? Usually in the red states, it's the more urban areas that are more liberal, because it turns out that one of the most kind of salient and highly correlated political kind of um, items in America is political affiliation and population density, right? The more Population dense, the more liberal, the more population kind of dispersed, the more conservative. And you know, that's a whole nother episode. People have written books on that, right? So the reality is that there really aren't any bubbles anywhere. Everyone in America lives pretty close to others with radically different political views. Okay, so let's just first just get rid of this bullshit, you know, coastal bubble, coastal liberal bubble, right? If anything, If anything, the bubble is on the right, right? The bubble is people who watch conspiracy theories and lies on Fox News all day. Or the people who are in really rural areas and don't see people of color, people of different religions, right? So if anything, the bubble is on the right, not on the left, okay? So now let's touch on the issue of looking down on the right wing. There is definitely some truth to this. I absolutely look down on racists, sexists, conspiracy theorists, and people who promote political violence. And I look down on the people who support this. I am proud to look down on that because it's evil. You too should look down on evil. I would hope every American citizen would look down on racists, would look down on people who promote insurrection, right? What this whole train of thought gets wrong is it's not that my looking down on them is what caused them to be that, right? The notion that my contempt for right-wing ideology is what caused right-wing ideology has the causation exactly backwards. People like me who look down at racists and sexists and theocrats are looking down at them because of the illiberal views that they have, but they held those views long before I came into the picture. It's not like, oh my God, Jason there in California is looking down at me, so I'm going to become even more homophobic and racist. Right? The causation just doesn't even make any sense. And let me also be clear, if they change their views, I would change my opinion of them. Like I say over and over again, I'll stop calling people racist. When they stop acting racist. That's the line of causality. You act responsibly and sanely and appropriately, and I will respect you. If you don't, I won't. Right? That's the that's the way this goes. It's not like, oh, I'm a racist and a sexist and a theocrat, and hey, if you start respecting me, I'll change my ways. No, 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 that's not the way it goes. That's not the way it works. It's not on me to change my behavior, to get them to change their behavior. That's not how it works. And when I say me, I mean the left and liberals, right? So again, what I also want to say, when I look down on these people, I look down on their beliefs and the actions that come from them. But again, as soon as they change, nothing's irredeemable. Nobody is permanently one way or another. I used to be a little homophobic. I'll just say it. When I was growing up in New York, there were a lot of gay people in New York who kind of made comments to me. I had teachers making comments to me. I was kind of, well, you know, a crazy kid, 15, 16. So I, I said homophobic things. Am I proud of that? No. But then I learned, hey, wait up, that's wrong. I shouldn't be like that. And, you know, just because there were some kind of creepy guys, you know, that doesn't I shouldn't paint this whole group of people with a broad brush stroke. So even me, a hardcore liberal who would go to the mat for the LGBTQ community, I used to say homophobic stuff. You know, again, not like as an adult, more as a kind of a teenager, you know, but still I did. And I I should have known better. But, you know, the context mattered and now I don't. So people can change. Right. Another angle to this that many commentators have pointed out is that it's almost a cottage industry on the right Right? especially in rural areas, to look down on people who live on the coast or in urban areas. Right, Who came up with the term real Americans? It definitely wasn't liberals or Democrats. I've never once in my life claimed that someone on the right who lives in a small town is not a real American, nor is any Democrat I've ever known. Right, But this phrase is routinely used on the right all the time, every day. Rural people talk about how cities are full of corruption and sin and violence and how rural people are the most hardworking, while minorities are mostly welfare queens. And this is never questioned or pushed back against in the mainstream. Rural right-wingers can spout, you know, how horrible coastal cities are and how they're the real Americans, and no one ever takes them to task for it. It's like the national myth that even many liberals seem to have bought into. And remember... These people in red states and rural areas have disproportionate power, right? They have way greater representation in the electoral college and in the Senate, right? So these people who are looking down on me, actually the system structurally gives them more power than me. And they still diss me, right? So ironically, also, these red right-wing areas, by and large, almost to the last, have higher divorce rates, spousal abuse rates, alcoholism, drug abuse, and violence, right, that people keep pointing this out, you know, the, the Republicans and the right wing talk about this massive crime wave and the blue crime wave, you look at cities in the South that are solidly red, Jacksonville, Florida, you know, placed in Ohio, South Carolina, their murder rates are much higher than San Francisco or New York or LA, right, so again, just facts, right, As usual, the right wing projects their own dysfunction onto others. That's their fucking game. That's what they do. Okay? So after the break, I'm going to examine the second myth of why the right wing has Democrats and liberals, you know, in this confused posture, which is that they have been left behind economically. That's why they're so angry. So we'll come to that right after the break. And so, my fellow Americans, as Okay, so moving on to this economic argument that, again, has been peddled almost mercilessly, nonstop for ever since Trump took the stage, you know, in the primaries in 2015, is that the MAGA world is mostly comprised of blue collar workers whose economic situation has deteriorated over the past few decades. Right. And that that's why they want to burn it all down. And they're so angry. Right. This is perhaps the most pervasive of the many zombie myths here that need to be dispelled. First off, there is of course no doubt that blue-collar workers have had a rough few decades in America with a large decrease in well-paying manufacturing jobs and the premium for going to college having really increased over the last 30 years so that the difference between people with a college degree and those without is really vast. Those with only a high school degree which are still the majority, You know, two-thirds of American citizens, are definitely worse off relative to the educated classes, perhaps the most ever in American history. Right? So that's a fact. But the key other fact here is many of those who are worse off vote Democrat, and they are not the core of the GOP base. The GOP base remains what it has always been, the rich and well-off who want more tax cuts, and the ultra Religious who have a theocratic worldview that they want to make America more a Christian nation. Okay? So it comes as a surprise to many, but here's a key fact. The average income of both Hillary and Biden voters was significantly lower than Trump voters in both elections. Right now, averages can hide some data, and there is no doubt that a slice of the MAGA base is made up of people in dire economic prospects but no more so than the Democratic field. And whites make up almost all of MAGA. And on average, whites have 10 times the wealth as blacks. So if economic dislocation was the main driver of MAGA, you'd expect blacks to be flocking to Trump rallies. Now, of course, there are some, but it's not dominated by them. It is mostly a white movement, right? Survey after survey after survey and study after study after study for the last eight years confirms that the main driver driver for MAGA voters is racial resentment. They don't like the browning of America, right? It's no coincidence that Trump rose to prominence after eight years of Obama, the first black president. And it's likely, although obviously never provable, that without Obama having been president, there would likely never have been Trump. That as much as Trump hated Obama and went after him, he needed Obama to get that resentment and that backlash, right? That's what he wrote on. Now, let's look at the January 6th insurrectionists. Many of them were middle-class professionals, doctors, lawyers, car dealer owners. Even a bunch of them flew in on private jets to the January 6th rally. The same with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. These are not mostly down and out former factory workers, these are middle class people, right? The reality is that the anger animating MAGA and the right is cultural grievance, it's not economics. And there are three main power centers on decline in America and also in the world, right, that are feeding into this. White supremacy is on the way out. America is browning, we had a black president, we have a black vice president, Right? We have a black woman on the Supreme Court. Whites are not going to dominate everything forever. Patriarchy is on the way out. Right, The Me Too movement. All the top schools, law schools, doctors, not necessarily all the engineering programs and computer science, but a lot of the top professional schools dominated by women. Women rising to positions of power. Again, a woman vice president. It's the, it's the beginning of the end of patriarchy. Religion, religious affiliation is on the is on the wane, it's declining. America is becoming a more secular nation. So the diminishment of even one of these power centers would be monumental historically, but they're all happening at the same time. Right? White supremacy on the way out, patriarchy on the way out, religion on the way out, and people are angry and lashing out. This grievance is understandable. Let me just make clear. I'm going to be very careful with my language. It is understandable, okay? If you're a white male Christian in America and you think your tribe has the right to be dominant forever and you think secularism is evil, it's understandable that you would be angry with the state of America in 2024. But just because something is understandable doesn't mean it's right, This is a big mistake some liberals make, you know, that just because someone has a reason that makes some sense in their mind, that that means it's a good reason, right? I understand why the right wing thinks the way it does. But the reality is what they want is illiberal, repressive and immoral. They want a world where white people continue to dominate others, where men continue to dominate women and where religion is either forced upon others or given special preference in society. All three of those preferences are antithetical to a just society. And even worse, they are willing to promote political violence and anti-democratic means, literally trying to overthrow elections to achieve their ends. They are now literally parodying Nazi rhetoric and claiming that insurrectionists are hostages and patriots. They are threatening judges and election workers, often using incredibly racist and sexist language of the vilest sort. This is fascism, and it must be defeated, not appeased, so you can understand something and still understand that it is also wrong. Okay, that's the difference. I get why the right wing is angry. Again, if I was a right-wing, patriarch, hardcore Christian, and I looked around in America, I would be angry too, right? If my worldview was to dominate, that my tribe needs to dominate everybody, and we've always dominated, and America is a white Christian nation, and men are on top. If I believe that, and I looked around, I'd be angry, but we need to go one step further. That belief is wrong. That belief is bad. Right? So just because it's understandable, that's not far enough. Okay? So after the break, I'll explore why it is that some liberals fall into the trap of blaming themselves for some of these evils of the right. Remember to let us into your skin. skin, Because then you'll begin to master. Rhyming, rhyming, rhyming. Minded, you've been blinded looking for a star like mine. You can't find it. They are the audience, I am the lyricist. Sometimes suckers on the side gotta hear this page, a rage, and I'm not in a cage. Free as a bird to fly about on stage. Ain't here for no fun, and just to say a little something. Your suckers don't like me because it's are all about nothing. Okay, so it's an interesting question as to why a segment of the left, of liberals, of democrats want to blame themselves for the corruption and antisocial behavior of the right. First off, I want to say I think liberal self-doubt originates from a good place, even if the result is bad. Liberals want to give the people the benefit of the doubt. Liberals tend to be very self-critical. These can be really good traits and often are, right? And all of us have MAGA people in our families and we want to think the best of them. But denying reality is not a good strategy, ultimately, for building a prosperous society. Ask yourself, what could Biden do to win over most of MAGA world? What about boosting rural health care or investing in red state manufacturing or helping rural Americans get affordable broadband internet? Oh, wait, he's done all those things. The majority of MAGA and the right wing doesn't want solutions. They want chaos, and they want to marinate in their own hatred. That's what animates them. That's what motivates them. I have MAGA family members. I know what it's like. And you know what? They're fascists. I say that not to be mean, but because it's the truth. They are also nice to their kids and neighbors, and in some contexts are fine and decent people. But their political ideology is toxic, destructive, and violent. These facts can be true all at the same time, right? These aren't contradictions, right? People who have fascist ideology, it doesn't mean they're frothing at the mouth, rolling around with you know Confederate flags and swastikas all the time. Most of the time, they're just being regular, ordinary citizens and being regular, ordinary, mostly decent people. But when it comes to politics... And the things they prioritize and the things they are willing to support, they go off the fucking rails, right? Now, look, of course, liberals should engage in self-examination and do more to reach out to others with different views. hundred percent. Let me give you some examples. I think the illegal immigration issue is real and serious and we need to control our borders. Now, interestingly, Biden is trying to make a deal right now with Senate Republicans to do some really hardcore crackdown on illegal immigration. But it looks like, you know, Johnson in the House isn't even going to let it come up for a vote because they don't want to give Biden a win in an election year. Literally, Johnson says, I'm talking with Trump routinely, and we're going to block this until he's president. So, again, they're using it as an issue to run on. And maybe even that might even be smart politically. I don't know if it is. But it certainly shows that they don't really want to solve the issue. They want to use it to their political advantage. Okay. I also, I get why abortion is something that many people find immoral. I fully respect that. I don't, you know, if you think, you know, um, killing a a fetus, uh, you know, an embryo, you know, even, you know, a really one that's almost microscopic. If you think that's killing a human, I I respect that decision that you're never going to have an abortion. I don't diss those people. I totally respect that, okay? What I don't respect is obviously when they try to impose their views on other people. And then they put all these crazy restrictions even when women's lives are in danger. That I don't respect. But their own personal opinion, absolutely great. You know, have as many kids as you want. I also understand why some people are taken aback by the incredibly rapid changes in gender associations, right? I am too. I'm a hardcore liberal. And sometimes I'm confused about what's appropriate to say or not. This change has been, you know, Obama was opposed to gay marriage. And now it's not just gay marriage that's legal, but we got transgender and all this. I get it. It's, it's disorienting for this type of cultural change to go quick. So I can, I can totally see why some on the right feel threatened by this, right? There are plenty of legitimate issues where the left needs to do work And we're we're not always on the right side. And we're not being sensitive to people. But in America in 2024, we are way beyond debating these issues. We're dealing with something much more fundamental. We're talking about the basic liberal compact of truth, the rule of law, and democracy. And there can be no compromise on that front. We must defeat the fascists through the ballot box. Not through violence, but at the ballot box. This is our job. But what about the persuadables, people tell me, right? This is often the pushback I get when I call the right fascists. They say, aren't you alienating the people we need to win? First off, let me be clear here. I'm not out there calling, you know, the right-wing people fascists all day, right? You know, I say it in emails. I say it in conversations with liberals. I say it on this podcast. But that's like, I'm not advising the Biden campaign to go around calling everyone fascists all day, right? Right? But if I do encounter people who are genuinely open minded about the election, I make the same arguments that I make to everyone else to them. This election is about democracy and the rule of law. Trump is opposed to democracy, it is a career criminal, and is trying to undermine the judicial system. This election is about women and whether they will be treated as second-class citizens in large swaths of this nation. And the final point I make is that the economy under Biden is doing better than under Trump. We have, you know, inflation coming down, we have record low unemployment, we have the stock market at record highs, and things are improving and going in the right direction. So that's what I, that's the argument I would make to anyone, whether it's right-wing, centrist, liberal, anyone. It's the same arguments for everyone. These should be sufficient to convince anyone who is truly open-minded to support Biden over Trump. And, the, and there are some on the right who are. There are people who are registered Republicans who are going to vote for Biden. And that's great. Maybe 10%, you know? So I think 90% of Republicans are probably unreachable, but if 10% are reachable, that's very significant. That could be a blue wave if we get all of them. Right? So that being said, someone right now who says, I'm a Trump supporter, is likely beyond reach. If they're like in Trump's camp now, they're probably beyond reach. Maybe not 100%, but pretty close. Because if you're a Trump supporter, after January 6th and 91 felony accounts, what good reason do you have to be for Trump? Now, I've heard a few anecdotes about people who are leaning Trump because they were better off economically during those years. But what does it say about someone who is willing to sell out democracy and the rule of law for the hope that they may have a few more bucks under a Trump second term? It doesn't really say anything good. I mean, the guy tried to overthrow the government violently. He stole national security secrets and lied to the FBI and, is in, again, has been indicted on 91 felony accounts, okay? By the way, all of which he is guilty. It's like 1,500 years in prison, okay? But some people say, hey, I made a few more bucks when he happened to be president. So hey, rule of law, democracy, career criminal, who cares, right? That's not a good look, right? So again, I don't really have a lot of respect for that. I get it that we got to talk to those people, but I'm not going to have a lot of respect for that thinking, right? And also look, right now in America, things aren't that terrible, I can understand societies that vote for terrible people when times are desperate. And remember, I can understand it, but it doesn't mean it's right. But I understand it. If inflation's 100%, if unemployment's 20%, I get it why people, desperate people do desperate things and oftentimes do stupid things. But that's not where we are in the U.S. right now on any metric, right? I'm not saying that there aren't any individuals who are in dire straits in America? Of course there are. There are too many. But our society as a whole is doing remarkably well, like the best in the world. So I think persuading undecideds to vote for Biden shouldn't be too heavy a lift if they're actually persuadable and not just bullshitting you. If people are really like, hey, make the case for Biden for me, I'm listening. And you just say the three things I said, Democracy and the rule of law, women's rights, and the economy moving in the right direction, that should push them over the fence if they're actually persuadable, right? And so if they're not, if they're like, ah, rule of law, democracy, women's rights, not enough for me. I like Trump. That's called fascism, right? If you like Trump with all that baggage, that's fascism, right? And we need to defeat that. So I'll come back with The Antidote right after the break. Huh. Now look at them yo-yos. That's the way you do it. You play the guitar on it. The- Okay, so for the antidote for today, it's pretty simple. I implore you to have confidence in the basic liberal order, truth, the rule of law, democracy, and make no apologies for it. Those who oppose those things are not voicing legitimate grievances, but threatening to tear down our society. Standing up for democracy and truth is a great calling, and everyone will benefit from it in the end, even those who now oppose it. Once we defeat MAGA, we will continue to work on improving society. And this means lifting everyone up, just as Biden has been doing for the past three years. So even MAGA will get better health care and better jobs and cleaner air. This is for everyone because there are no real Americans and fake Americans. There is one America. So distinguishing between legitimate grievances and illegitimate ones can sometimes be tricky. But it isn't right now. Facing reality with a clear head and no illusions is what is needed in this historic moment. So let's do this. Let's do it together. Let's do it with confidence and pride. Okay, everybody. With that, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And with that, everybody, have a great rest of the week. I hope you're all well. Stay safe. Take care.